You're listening to the Plane Talking UK podcast, the UK-based podcast written by a passenger for anyone. And here are your hosts, Carlos Stevings, Matt Smith and Neville Bounds. Well, hello and welcome to episode number 271 of the Plane Talking UK podcast. I'm Carl Stebbings and not joining me in the PTUK studios this week is Matt Smith. He has, uh, he's gone on a jolly somewhere. Uh, I think he's gone to uh, pick up some passengers from the airport in his uh, in his vehicle. So uh, Matt's not with us tonight, but uh, I'm sure he's probably watching the stream of the show via his uh, mobile device whilst not driving, hopefully. But uh, joining us, as always, this week on the show, over in the glorious sunshine in Buckinghamshire, it's Neville Bounds. It is very sunny, yes. Not bad at all. And uh, it's been a good day today, actually. going to be a very hot weekend coming up, too. So that's uh, great. And uh, yes, shame we haven't got Matt tonight, but we uh, have got some other good people as well, haven't we, Carlos? We have, yes. So joining us as well from across the pond in the uh, also probably glorious sunshine, I would imagine, over there. He's looking out the window to see. It is the man who puts the A in aviation. It's Armando. Oh, man, that's probably my biggest title yet. That's uh, <laughs> those are big shoes to fill. Hey, Carlos. <laughs> Hi, Nev. How are things with you, uh, Armando? I guess you're uh, you're still enjoying the relaxing time of retirement. I am. Uh, once again, not a lot this week, other than flying a couple times in the uh, Cessna 182, training some folks uh, here in the local area on some search and rescue stuff. Other than that, some housework and more paddling on the uh, on the lake. Uh, sounds nice. <laughs> sounds nice. So uh, I guess if you haven't been doing much flying lately then, uh, Armando. No, just those two quick sort of one-hour flights, one hour and a half, and then uh, as we talked about last week, tomorrow very early in the morning, I will be heading out to Reno uh, for the air races. So not a lot of flying next week either, but uh, definitely an aviation-oriented uh, week. So your job as pit boss, that'll be... Yeah, that's it. So each class, uh, Reno has different classes. There's uh, Formula One, there's biplanes. Uh, sport class is the biggest class, which is your sort of general homemade aircraft, uh, home-built aircraft. And then you have the T6 class, which is all T6 Texans, the, the old radial engine ones, and then all the way up to jets and unlimited, which is your, you know, C-Furies and your P-51s and, and those four four to five hundred mile per hour airplanes so yeah so i'll be working the sport class pit boss hopefully get some good content from that as well looking forward to that looking forward to seeing that so joining me in the studio this week we have a special guest he's uh, back on the show he's had quite an interesting last six months of uh, changing jobs and bits and pieces so welcome back to the show Stuart o'neill hello uh, thank you for having me back on the show it's always a pleasure to be here and uh Good to see you, lads, as well. Um, so how's, how's the uh, job going, Stuart? Because you've obviously changed <coughs> jobs, uh, or changed airlines, I should yeah, say. Yeah, so when I was last here on the show, it, uh, <laughs> it was all a bit of a shock. Uh, it was the same weekend that my uh, airline went bust. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so it came as a bit of a shock to me back then. Um, 
but it actually all turned out for the good. Um, I was officially made unemployed the following Monday at midday or two o'clock, and then uh, by that afternoon I'd been re-employed uh, with a, a national airline. The Scottish who, who we'll, National we'll Airline. Oh, Tartan. Oh, Tartan. Tartan Air. That's a good name. Yeah, Tartan Air. Yeah. So I was re-employed straight away, and then had a, a week off, um, and then had a week's orientation course, and I've been flying for them ever since, wearing the same uniform, same planes, but with a bit of Tartan. Wow. <laughs> Sounds good. We'll we'll have a good catch up later on the show with yep. that. So it is Friday, it's uh, five past seven in the evening on the 31st of May. Big welcome to everyone who's joined us in the live YouTube chat room this evening. Uh, loads of the usual family members in there. Graham Haley, Chris Griggs, uh, Auntie Liz over in uh, Canada, hello to you. John Picard, uh, we've got Tanya W also in the chat room. Your t-shirts are nearly ready to be picked up and sent off so don't panic and uh, who else we've got in there we've got obviously we've got um, uh, Neville Barnes the blue spanner of death in there as well and I do think uh, our main man Micah is also going to join us in the chat room later on he's uh, going to join us there so welcome to everyone who has joined us on this Friday evening so we've got loads to get through in the show this week uh, we've got all of the usual news and also we've got a very interesting interview coming up indeed um, with uh, Captain Nick and that was one of the interviews that we've done at Duxford a few weeks back and Nick's going to be talking all about the F4 Phantom which he uh, has a lot of experience in flying but Nev you've got a, another bit of uh, news just following on from that uh, about Captain Nick because it's uh, a special time for him as well yes it is yeah and uh, today is his last official day i think we can even name his airline now can't we with we can. Uh, virgin atlantic yeah. um and so uh, he's done 25 years uh, in the left hand seat there and uh, i think although he's uh, obviously relieved to, to be retired in, in some respects uh, he'll miss a lot of his chums as well and uh, he'll miss the flying that's for sure but uh, that'll give him more time to do podcasts uh, photography and all the stuff that he does uh, for APG, so that'll be brilliant. So we all wish Captain Nick a very happy retirement indeed. Hey, well done, Nick. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it was uh, certainly nice to see Nick a few weeks uh, ago, and uh, and joining the festivities. We had a we had a really good time that day. But um, yes, congratulations to Captain Nick. So moving on, yeah. then we are going to start the show then, as we do each week with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK. So if you're ready, Nev. Yes, I am. Armando. Ready to go. Stuart. Uh, yeah, let's go. Let's go. Soaking off this week's first news story on theguardian.com and an update on the 737 MAX. Uh, headline on there, Boeing 737 MAX won't fly again before August, says the airline trade body. The Boeing 737 MAX aircraft will not return to the skies before August and uh, the uh, MAX was grounded by regulators in the wake of the two crashes. Although manufacturer Boeing has been working on a fix to allay safety concerns, it's likely to remain out of service for another 10 to 12 weeks into peak season for many airlines. 
Alexandre de Junac, the chief executive of the International Air Transport Association, said the timing would depend on regulators, but he hoped to see the unified global timetable for the model's reintroduction. The grounding of the MAX came first in China, then Europe, before the US Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, eventually followed suit after the crash in Ethiopia in March that killed 157 people on board. Uh, it was the 737 MAX second disaster in five months after 189 people were killed in the Indonesia crash in October. Speaking in Seoul ahead of the association's annual meeting, De Junac said that the airlines were not expecting a return to service within the next 10 to 12 weeks, but it's not in our hands, that's in the hands of the regulators. IATA is planning a summit meeting between airlines, regulators, Boeing in the July to discuss a coordinated timeline to restore the 737 MAX to commercial flying. The Junac said that we hope all the regulators will align their time frame, he said. Uh, the 737 MAX disasters have ignited tensions between regulators on either side of the Atlantic amid concerns over the FAA's relationship with Boeing, including the degree of self-certification. According uh, to Reuters, sources at ICAO, the UN Aviation Agency, believe the FAA will approve the 737 MAX again as soon as late June. US operation, uh, operators United Airlines, American Airlines, Southwest Airlines, uh, early customers of the model sold as a more fuel-efficient iteration of the 737 short-haul workhorse have removed the aircraft from their flight schedules until early to mid-August. Uh, Dijunac said prolonged grounding was taking its toll on airlines, although IATA expects its 290 airline members to be recording a tenth consecutive year of aggregate profit, he said. Uh, the 737 was adding to this headwinds, including rising costs, trade wars and other uncertainties that are likely to have an impact on the bottom line. Figures for air freight released on Wednesday this week showed IATA showed a 4.7% year-on-year decline in April. And Dejunac added it's clear that trade tensions are taking their toll on the cargo industry. So, we could see the 737 MAX back in the sky again in August. Hopefully, if it all goes well. Obviously, you are, you are a pilot, Stuart. <laughs> uh, flying commercially, you obviously knew all about the um, what happened here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know everything that's still not happened. Uh, mm. The full reports aren't out yet. We're still going to wait another year or so for the accident reports. Probably longer in this case because of all the reviews of the aviation authorities involved. Uh, I don't know. I'm starting to think that maybe it shouldn't fly again. What do you think about this whole MCAS system? Obviously, you've not got it on the Embraer. No. Uh, well, of course, it's. Uh, I don't like it because it's taking control away from the pilots. What, what happened is the 737 was a really good plane, and they just got greedy, and they extended it, extended it, put bigger and bigger engines on, tried to cram in more and more, um, and they ended up building a plane that was just pig-ugly to fly. And it and that's the problem. It didn't fly, and that's why they they then the engineers had, oh, we'll put the MCAS in to make it safe. So if it does go into a stall, it'll recover. So they just kept like putting sticky plasters over it. Someone in the management of Boeing, you know, four or five years ago, should have said, "Look, this design just doesn't fly well. Let's start again. Let's do a mini Dreamliner or something. Let's start mm. redesign from scratch." But they just got greedy, ex extending it. I've, I've heard now they're talking about how to rejig it is actually to reduce the passenger load on it and and have less seats in the rear. Um, and various things like this, so then even the airlines won't be happy because it's not going to be as profitable for them. Ryanair wouldn't, no. Oh, no, Ryanair would <laughs> be... Uh, well, Michael O'Leary is about making them stand anyway, so... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you think, Armando? Um, August? 
Yeah, I, I think we've talked about this the last couple episodes. It, whatever the solution is, it will be uh, a vetted solution. It'll it'll be probably one that everyone will agree on, like the article says, between all the regulating bodies across the world as well as the airlines because they have a huge stake in this, obviously, probably the biggest stake um, other than Boeing. But, uh, y- you know, I... I think the 737 has a long life, but a little bit later on, we have a different article about exactly what Stuart is talking about, where the uh, Boeing is proceeding ahead with its plans for a 797. Um, Yeah, so. Yeah, Mike has just made a good point in the chat room. He said that, um, I've heard this many times, and it's the issue, was they needed to compete with the A320neo. They didn't have the time to come up with a new design. Um, You know, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what it all boils down to, I think. But, I mean, Armando, I think you're being optimistic if you think the regulators, because I think there's going to be a bit of a geopolitics going on with that. So you've got the Chinese, (laughs) the Africans, the EASA and FAA. I don't know if they're all going to play ball. Um, Might be a hot potato. Yeah, Um, I I don't know if if they'll all play ball, but uh, I think once EASA and the FAA call it good, and, uh, and then the airline, the American Airlines not American Airlines, but U.S. Airlines and and operators like Ryanair, once they start, you know, demonstrating that the airplane is safe. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think we talked about there's almost 400 of these airframes out there. So I, I think uh, there was a lot of social media, uh, not bias. I, I, again, I, I never want to marginalize the, the effects of, of two major accidents. Yep. But I think once the media moves on and, and it's demonstrated that the airplane is safe to fly, then then it'll just um, go on from there, right? The MCAS has gotten a lot of the uh, attention, but uh, as Micah says in the in the chat room, there was a Swiss cheese model that came together for those yep. accidents to happen yeah. where, where it was crew training, it was Boeing, it was FAA, it was, you know, I, I think we're probably going to, see improvements in all those things which is the ultimate goal of any crash investigation yeah yeah so moving on to the next story nev and uh, a uh, a ba story for you to drone on about ah yes see what we did there well <laughs> it, it's, it's in the uh, on the metro.co.uk and it says british airways jet claim came close to a drone being flown illegally over a car park at heathrow airport shows uh, and the pilot, said, uh, the pilot was at a height of just 250 feet and moments from landing uh, when he saw the drone on the right-hand side of the aircraft. Uh, the jet, which was flying at around 150 miles per hour after a 12-hour flight from Seoul, Korea, was carrying up to 214 passengers. Uh, the close call happened at 1.38 p.m. on March 17th, just four days after new laws banned drone flying within five kilometres of airport runways. Uh, previous rules banned drones from flying within one kilometre of any airport in the UK. The no-fly zone was extended partly as a result of the chaos caused when 1,000 flights were disrupted by drone sightings at Gatwick just before last Christmas. A report by the UK Airprox Board, which investigates near misses, rated it as a Category B incident where safety of the aircraft was compromised. It says that the pilot had described the drone as being around two feet in diameter and white in colour. The report added he believed it had four rotors and was hovering over what appeared to be a car park area. Uh, Investigators ruled that the drone had been illegally flown into conflict with a jet in a no-fly zone 
and was endangering aircraft at Heathrow. Uh, the report says the board considered that the pilot's overall account of the incident portrayed a situation where safety had been much reduced below the norm to the extent that safety had not been assured. A BA spokesman said we take uh, such matters extremely seriously and our pilot reports incidents so that the authorities can investigate and take appropriate action. Spokesman for Heathrow said drones are an increasing issue. Uh, in the last few years we've been investing in technology to detect and defeat them. And uh, of course you know my you know pet peeve for not having the right aircraft on, on you know <laughs> on, on the thing. Uh, they must be listening to me on this um, website because they've got two different aircraft. They've got a, a 747-400 on one picture and a 777 on the other. We'll not, we'll never know what which aircraft it was. So they were uh, hedging their bets there. But, uh, it's probably a Trident. It, yeah. Uh, but, uh, so here we are again, another drone incident, and there's going to be many more, aren't there? We, oh, we yeah. keep saying this. But they never caught anyone. They never caught anyone or prosecuted no. anyone. They never no, did. Once again. No. Yeah. I mean, we we live obviously we live in the in the east of England. It's a very rural area, as Armando knows very well. And you fly from our nearest airport, you know, international airport, Norwich here, Stuart. So obviously, yes. do you take it you've never had any incidences yet since you've been flying out of Norwich touch, to see? Is that tablewood? Yes, yeah, it's a <laughs> touch wood. <laughs> um, no, not yet. Um, I think there has been laser attacks at Norwich before. Oh, wow. okay. um, I'm not sure about drones had a lot of pigeons today <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah no no nothing like no that. drones no drones okay so we're going to move on to the next story and uh <laughs> yeah good one for you armando yeah this is from the sun daily uh, a airline passenger bound for kuala lumpur on the afternoon of may 28th was arrested by the police for cracking a joke about having a bomb inside his checked-in luggage. Kuching District Police Chief ACP Awang Gani, uh, who confirmed the arrest, uh, said the suspect told the joke to an airline staff when he was asked about the contents of his luggage during the check-in. The 28-year-old suspect is currently under arrest to aid in investigations. He added that despite being counterintuitive, the incident should have been taken as a lesson as joking about bombs at an airport was against the law. The airport is a high security area and the joke could cause fear and panic among passengers or ground staff who are within earshot when it was uttered. The case will be investigated under Section 506 of the Penal Code for Criminal Intimidation, which carries a jail term of up to seven years or a fine or both. Uh, Civil Aviation Offenses Act 1984 for endangering or likely to endanger the safety of an aircraft. And when I was reading this initially, I was thinking, you know, it's it's now been over 15 years, almost 20 years since we had uh, the 9-11 attacks and then those those few, um, you know, the, the Christmas Eve bomber, the underwear bomber, the shoe bomber, you know, all these different things. It's now been 15 years or so where I think most people our age remember those things and and it's probably instilled in us to, not to make any jokes like that but maybe some some young folks don't uh internalize that quite the same way and, and, and maybe you know are trying to trying to joke around when it's when it's very much still a very serious threat to aviation yeah not the kind of thing you want to run around an airport you know bragging about no. having, yeah 
But you, you, I mean, a lot you can say a lot of things, and they can be taken in the wrong light now, uh, as a comedy. Um, I can't think of a good example now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anything you say, uh, you've got. Like, especially, I've heard all the stories about American security and how careful you've got to be what you say. Um, <laughs> in the UK, I think they don't mind a joke too much, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't know that uh, TSA. The, the transportation is known for their humor. No, but <laughs> well, especially when they weren't getting paid uh, earlier this year or last year. Oh yeah, so, as we're, we're working without a paycheck and still try, trying to work with with a smile on their face. No, fair enough. Yeah, so I keep imagine uh, Nev going onto a BA flight saying, "You know, give me this upgrade," and then when they give him the upgrade, oh, this upgrades the bomb. Yeah. You know, or something along those lines. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, there, there's some uh, there's some stupid people around. I have to say, and unfortunately, there are always going to be people be people that do this sort of thing, and they they will never learn, will they? Uh, but uh, no, you, you don't joke about that kind of stuff. Not uh, not in this not in this times. No. So Stuart, yeah, nice little story for you. Technology story. I like it. Harbour Air. Oh, what should I go? Where is it from? Harbour Air, this one's from cnet.com. Oh, yeah, cnet.com. Mm. Uh, courtesy of cnet.com, uh, an interesting story about seaplanes. Harbour Air plans to be the first electric airline, and it will do it with seaplanes. The company will retrofit its fleet of vintage seaplanes with cutting-edge electric drivetrains from a Magni X company. <clears throat> In a lot of ways, airplanes represent one of the worst possible use cases for electric motors and batteries. Batteries are heavy, and aircraft tend to operate in a steady state at fixed RPMs for long periods, not a recipe for efficiency where EVs are concerned. That's not going to stop Harbour Air, though, from retrofitting its short-hop seaplane fleet with electric drivetrains mm. from a company called Magni X. Or maybe that's Magnet 10. I'm not sure. Um, Green Car Report said Sunday, the Magnet X system will in some cases be replacing internal combustion engines that are well over 50 years old. The upgraded planes will have 200 kilowatt hour batteries and their Magni 500 electric motors will produce 750 horsepower. Wow. And around 2,075 foot-pounds of torque. This would give the aircraft an estimated flight time of 30 minutes with 30 additional minutes of reserve. If that doesn't sound like much, it isn't. These seaplanes, however, spend much of their time doing short flights from Vancouver, British Columbia, to nearby outlying islands for much, for which the 30-minute flight time should be plenty. The company estimates that those short hops represent 70% of its 30,000 flights annually. That's quite a few flights. Harbour Air currently operates 42 planes in Vancouver and Seattle, Green Car reports, and says the goal is to eventually retrofit the entire fleet of planes with electric drive trains, starting first with a single-engine aeroplane like its de Havilland Beavers, and finally, when flight time can be extended, tackle the retrofit of its longer-range de Havilland Twin Otters that are used for the flight between Vancouver and Seattle. Once the changeover is complete, Harbour Air will become the world's first fully electric airline. Mm. The company also claims to have been the world's first airline to go carbon neutral in 2007, thanks to its purchase of a program of purchasing carbon offset credits. Though Harbour Air didn't immediately respond to requests for comment. So, uh, interesting times for the Canadians. Uh, obviously, uh, probably quite a shrewd financial manoeuvre by Harbour Air as well. Um, they have got an ageing fleet of aircraft, and uh, this company, Magnarex, were probably offering these uh, electric engines at very good cost 750 price. 750 horsepower. 
the yeah, caravan. Yeah, the same as a caravan, yeah. Yeah, the caravan, as I say. That's quite impressive. But, um, but I mean, the good thing is, if it's just hopping out to an island, if the engine fails, it's just going to land on the water. Mm. Uh, I think that's the, the, the beauty of it. And uh, 30 minutes, and with a 30-minute reserve... That's enough. If it and if the batteries don't last in a few years, they'll just give them back to Magniex and probably reinstall their overhauled uh, turbine engines. Have you flown a seaplane, Stu? No, I'm afraid I haven't. Not no, yet. No, not yet. Would love to have a go. Love to have a it's, go. It's on the list. <laughs> but you, Armando. I flew a seaplane once up in New York in the Finger Lakes, and I think that was a 206. Says not 206. That was pretty amazing experience. I, I, I like this. I like this Har- Harbor Air, you know, being the first company. I, it's, a, it's a good airplane to, to try it in. I think beavers and caravans and twin otters, those, those kinds of airplanes are incredibly tough. Uh, so I'm looking forward to see how this works. And I, I, th- I was listening over to APG this week, and they were talking about Mokalele out in Hawaii. Mokalele Airlines is looking at the same thing for some of its seaplanes. Yeah, you th- you wouldn't think you'd have the power with an electric engine to push, you know, something quite that size, especially the 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 caravan that you fly, Stuart. With well, yeah, but the the bigger it is, yeah, the power the power's there, and the and the engines are so small, uh, mm. they they're so tiny. The uh, I mean, it is just a few magnets, but with enough voltage, it can go at any speed with well with any torque as well. Mm. I know, I've just uh, it's not the same, but I've just had a, been riding my electric bicycle. Yeah, you have an electric. Bicycle. I have an electric bicycle, <laughs> and it is incredible. I've been riding it all the time, back and forth to Beckles, flying the parachute wow. planes there on the weekends. <laughs> I just rode rode here. I can wow. go. Uh, it's normally like an eight mile trip, and normally it takes an hour to cycle it. But on the electric bike, you can do it in about forty minutes, and you arrive there. You're not sweaty. You, you feel fresh, but you're also healthy. <laughs> but the electric motor in it is is phenomenal. Goes up oh, any wow. hill. Uh, the future is electric. Um, yeah. It just ne- it needs to be proven. But can you see this in commercial airliners, though? Electric bicycles. If you no, pedal. not bicycles. <laughs> no, yeah. They have the passengers <laughs> pedal, yeah. Well, Norway have got grand plans. Have you seen a lot of the developments going on in uh, mm. Norway? So uh, Norway is going electric car by 2020-something. And they've now uh, there, there's a major flying school over there that is saying their whole new fleet is all going to be electric. Mm. And they're yeah, sort of, uh, commissioning designs in airlines. Very cool. I think once uh, Nev gets his media credentials approved for Aero Expo in Friedrichshaven, there there was an entire hangar dedicated to electric uh, driven airplanes, uh, and that that wow. was pretty impressive. What I, I think Siemens and Mag- Magnus is it? Uh, some oh, of the stuff that yeah. for GA. The future, yeah, is here. The next story is on the simpleflying.com website. And uh, worrying one, this one, especially if you are a passenger uh, at the time. This was uh, United Airlines Boeing 737 engine fire prompts Hawaii emergency landing. So a United Airlines flight traveling from Hawaii was forced to return to Honolulu when a fire broke out in the engine. Flight UA-132 was heading for Majuro, the capital of the Marshall Islands, on Sunday when flames started shooting out of the engine. The flight landed safely back at Daniel K. Inouye International Airport and no injuries were reported. There are some things you never uh, hope will never happen to you on an aircraft. Uh, hostage situations, severe turbulence, snakes, but something which would be super scary for any passenger to look out the window and see are flames shooting out of the engine. 
This is exactly what happened to the passengers on this flight. So the flight, the United Airlines flight from Honolulu to uh, the, Mar or the Marshall Islands, took off at 7.30 in the morning local time on Sunday with 141 passengers and eight crew on board. Uh, it was a 737-800. The aircraft took off as normal, but moments into the flight, as the aircraft headed out over the water, something went wrong. Passengers reported seeing flames shooting out of the left-hand engine in two bursts. According to flight data, the aircraft then circled over the ocean for some time, presumably to, for the flight crew to perform tests on the engine to decide whether to abort the trip. Uh, clearly, the uh, eventually decided that it could not go ahead, and the aircraft landed back at Honolulu almost exactly two hours later at half past nine in the morning. The flight was met by emergency crews, however, no injury, uh, injuries were reported, and uh, the airline spokesperson said the flight experienced a mechanical issue with one of the engines. Uh, detail of the nature of the incident was not reported. Information on flight radar show the aircraft uh, flight being cancelled in addition to three next hops which would have been using the same aircraft and uh, at this time the same trip program for June the 2nd is still on schedule although it's not clear whether the same 737 November 37281 will be used. So passenger Joss Lay was filming their flight when the incident occurred and uh, he said that uh, fire and smoke was coming out of the back for a few seconds, a few spurts of fire, he said. Then the next thing you know, we were staying at the same elevation, circling around for almost an hour before we landed again. And it was just an hour of just trying to figure out what was going on. Now, if you take yourselves over to the website, you can see there's actually a video of, uh, of this uh, happening. And um, what do you reckon, Stuart? Hang on, you just scrolled past the important bit about what the pilot said. Oh, the pilot, yeah. <laughs> The pilot, yeah, the pilot told the passengers that apparently a compressor on one of the engines had failed. Mm -hmm. But uh, what we'll do, we'll actually, there is a video for this, and I can actually run the video. So if we put this on there and press that, here we go. And check out the video here. You'll see, for those of you watching in YouTube world, there we go. Something not going quite right there with that engine. That was the compressor. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's just lucky Matt wasn't on this flight at the time. What do you think? Yeah, scary stuff to see uh, flames going out the back of the engine. Yeah. yeah. But uh, it got down okay. Well, yeah, I think it's all over. I have a question for Stuart. If you have something like this and and what's sort of the general procedure if you if you have a compressor stall or some other malfunction like this and and the airplane's handling fine yeah you uh, just shut down the engine um so i think it's all a bit over egged really and they're saying oh we didn't know what was going on uh reading in between the lines it's pretty obvious they had a failure uh they shut down the engine then they went and orbited um went through their qrh and uh, quick reference handbook and go through the checks associated with it and then uh, they probably decided well let's uh, hold here and burn off some fuel before we land uh, look at the, the recent Sukhoi 100 that burst into flames that that landed back two tons overweight um, if they'd gone on off and uh, burnt some fuel or or um, jettisoned it um, I don't know if that's available to these guys probably not on this aircraft no um, but yeah it's quite it's not uncommon you, you're normally taking over above your landing weight um, you've got a second perfectly good engine um, they're designed to just carry on running for hours and hours uh, that's why you can go across the Atlantic now with just two engines. If one fails, you carry on. Um, the reading between the lines is not that much to it. And uh, the pilot, I'm quite happy that he and kept the p passengers informed and told them what was happening. 
uh, saying there's been a compressor fail, then they're probably just working through the checks. Uh, it's pretty standard stuff, and we train for that uh, um, regularly. Uh, you're in the simulator every six months, uh, sometimes more often in other airlines, um, and you practice all those kind of drills, engine failures. It's it's second nature to us. And then every day we brief as well before we take off on the first flight of the day. We do some emergency briefs and discuss the drills and practice them a little bit, touch drills or memory items. It's uh, mm. yeah, and it, yeah, the aircraft carry on flying. They're, they're massively over overpowered engines to to fly with one yeah. so next story Nev is um, a well a BA story but I'm not sure whether you love the aircraft too much Nev or the airline no well it's actually an AB story if you see what I mean um, because it's on the businesstraveler.com and it says that BA is to subcontract its daily Heathrow to Cairo service using uh, Air Belgium this autumn. Uh, the move is allowing for continually uh, precautionary inspections to be carried out on the Rolls-Royce Trent 1000 engines on some of BA's uh, 787-9 aircraft. Uh, Air Belgium's Air A340 aircraft will operate uh, flights BA155 from Heathrow and BA154 from Cairo between August the 18th and November the 1st. As previously reported, the carrier is also operating BA's flights between Heathrow and uh, Newark uh, from April the 1st to June the 8th, as well as one of BA's two daily Heathrow to Toronto services uh, from June the 9th to August the 17th. Uh, Air, the Air Belgium A340 in question offers a two-class economy and business class layout, which differs significantly to BA's seat configuration on this route. The carrier has published more information on options for, the, for those customers affected by this. Uh, note that uh, Air Belgium also operates a A340 in a three-class economy, premium economy and business class configuration, but the aircraft being used here is the two-class version. Uh, the carrier's fully flat business class seat is configured 222, whilst economy is 242. Uh, the airline launched last year offering long-haul flights to Hong Kong, but these were shelved for the winter season and the carrier this week said it would not be resuming the service for the summer 2019. Instead plans are to focus on new routes to mainland China and the Americas. This of course is an A340-300, a bit underpowered, a bit, a bit sluggish, um, but also I've noticed that um, we were supposed to be going to Toronto uh, next month on a 787, but uh, that's been replaced by a 777 and I'm wondering whether they're going to change it again to either this or something else. So we'll have to see. Uh, but um, yeah, so BA are doing a lot of subcontracting. Uh, presumably it's a, a wet lease, including the crew and all the rest of it, um, until the Trent 1000 problem is finally solved. Well, I think it's solved. It's just a question of going through all the aircraft for, for different checks. and, and what mm. Have you heard of these guys, Stu? Yeah, and I've I've seen that plane parked up quite a few times in uh, Munich. It was it used to be parked up uh, when they were doing those uh, Chinese routes. But it, the, I think they had uh, there was some maintenance issue. It was grounded for ages. I don't know if it had a ramp hit or something. But yeah, the thing is, it's an A three forty, and it's the older one. It's very inefficient, um, and that, I think that's why they pulled that Hong Kong route because they realised they were never going to pay for the uh, low pay uh, passenger loads they were getting. Um, and that, yeah, so they've and the fuel for the four hair dryers changed the wet leasing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> as as Nick would say. So moving on to the next story, Armando. 
Yeah, that's what kind of what we were talking about a little bit earlier. This is from airlineratings.com. And Boeing is moving steadily to launch its new midsize aircraft for or 797, although its chief executive, Dennis Millenberg, is coy on a launch date. Speaking at an Alliance Bernstein conference, uh, uh, Mr. Millenberg said that Boeing still intends to decide this year whether to offer its proposed NMA despite the MAX tragedies. According to Flight Global, Millenberg told investigator con- the investor conference that our overall broad timeline of that program has not changed. We still see it as a 2025 entry into service type of airplane. The 797 would carry between 200 to 270 passengers and have a 4,000 to 5,000 nautical mile range with twin aisles. Airlines are pressing Boeing to continue work on the 797 with Delta Airlines being a major driver. Insiders tell airlineratings.com that progress has not slowed on the refining of the design and the business case. However, Mr. Millenberg stressed that the 737 MAX remains Boeing's top priority probably a good thing to say right now. Uh, Flight Global said he told the conference that the company has made clear and steady progress towards getting the aircraft back in the skies. Boeing has finished testing an update to the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation or MCAS system and is in the process of applying for final certification. We are finishing a dialogue with the FAA working through a series of questions and answers with them. Once that is complete, we'll schedule a certification flight on the 777X Mullenberg said that it was on track for its first flight, but also did not specify a date, though uh, insiders tell AirlineRatings.com that it will be sometime in late June. Let's see. According to Flight Global, uh, in the last two weeks, Boeing held 737 MAX-related meetings with customers in Dubai, Europe, Miami, Moscow, Singapore, Shanghai, and Tokyo, uh, while Again, offering his condolences to the crash victims, Mr. Millenberg's comments took a more positive tone. We see this as a defining moment for the Boeing company. I am confident that on the backside of this, we will come out even stronger. It has only reinforced, reinvigorated everything we are doing in driving quality and safety. Getting back to the wide-body aircraft, Millenberg said that demand for Boeing aircraft remains strong, with airlines estimated to need some 43,000 new aircraft within 20 years. We see a very solid aerospace market. Uh, Another significant wide body replacement wave is coming sometime in the next decade. The 787 and 777X are both well positioned. Is it just me or does this 797 look really small? I mean, the picture they've got, here we go, just put that on the screen. For those of you guys watching, uh, it's a concept picture, it says on the uh, story. Mm. But it's not the largest of uh, no. aircraft. Uh, but it'll probably have bigger windows, like the A200 or something. Hmm. Just doesn't look very... Um, yeah, perhaps that's, that's just an, uh, a concept of what the 797 will look like. Perhaps it will be... It's, I mean, it's, if it's going to hold that many people, it's going to be a twin-aisle aircraft. It's, it's going to be, you know, a, a bit bigger than the picture I think they've got on there. But um, yeah, I think um, it, it's it's a good move by Boeing to bring out a completely different aircraft. I think something um, to uh, you know to move into the gap that the um, triple set. Well, I'd say the triple set, the um, seven five and the seven six, because obviously the airlines are starting to phase out a lot of the seven fives and seven sixes now. 
Yeah. Um, it's whether or not they can afford the development fees for it. Mm. Uh, it's going to cost a lot. Yes, I think Boeing's uh, bank has probably taken quite a hit mm. over the last uh, last few months. But they might just have to. I know you think that. I've still got concerns that maybe the 737 Max might get shelved and be converted into cargo freighters and they develop something new. Uh, mm. Wouldn't surprise me. Mm. You know. So next story, moving on, Stuart, is uh, is one especially for you, and uh, this is obviously um, an aircraft you probably know a little bit about. A little bit, I don't know that much. I haven't flown it, <laughs> <laughs> but this is wrong now because it's not Embraer. Uh, the title of the article is uh, "The Embraer Starts Assembly of the First E One Seven Five E Two," and this is from uh, Airway One Aerospace News. This is was dated yesterday, but as I understand it, they're now going to be called Boeing Brazil. Ooh. That's the, that was the headline news, that it's not Embraer anymore. It's going to be Boeing Brazil. Boeing Brazil. Yeah. Uh, the first of the E-175E2 achieved an important stage of production in May at the Embraer factory in Brazil with the completion of the joining of sections of the fuselage. The first flight of the smallest member of the E2 family is scheduled for the year end of the end of this year. The manufacturer will build three prototypes for the testing campaign, one for static ground tests and two for flights. The aircraft is expected to enter into service in 2021. Even with the up-to-date schedule, the E175E2 has a huge problem. Only one customer has shown interest in the jet. The American regional SkyWest Airlines that has an order for 100 aeroplanes plus 100 options. Since it cannot operate the new aeroplane, the order of the airline is in suspense. Uh, the US pilot syndicate agreements with three major airlines contain a clause that prevent regional airlines from operating aircraft weighing over £86,000. The first generation E-175 complies with this limit, unlike the new E-175E2 that exceeds that weight by more than £12,000. Embraer has been designing the new regional jet in the hope that the so-called scope clause will be changed in this year and next year's contract negotiations by American Airlines, Delta United and Alaskan Airline Unions. These companies operate the first generation of the E-175 through outsourced companies such as SkyWest and Republic Airlines, now the largest customers of the Brazilian manufacturer's aircraft. SkyWest, which operates services for Air Delta and Alaska, has said it committed to acquiring the E-175E2 but is prepared to change its request to the older, lighter version if there are no changes to the agreement. American companies are the main customers of the E-175, now Embraer's best-selling aircraft, well, I didn't know that, with more than 400 units in service. Despite the risk of not filing the new filing, should that be flying, the new US <laughs> jet, Embraer commercial aviation CEO John Slattery told the press this week he sees opportunities for the E-2 outside the US market. CEO of America's commercial division said there's demand for the smallest model in the new series around the world, especially in Asia. And Slattery also added that sales of the E2 will be split equally between the models 175, 190 and 195, depending on the configuration. Uh, the E175E2 is also almost one meter longer than the first generation, allowing you to add another row of seats in the cab. The capacity of the new aircraft varies from 80 to 90 passengers. Other novelty in the jet are the most efficient engines, unique design wing and 100% computerised control systems. Deliveries of the E2 family by the first quarter of this year, Embraer had delivered only 6 E2 jets, including only two other aircraft this year, which is significantly lower than aircraft programmes such as Airbus and Boeing. Uh, and uh, Rodrigo de Souza, Embraer's Vice President of Marketing, told reporters this week that the slower delivery rate was planned 
that's a good excuse, to avoid production problems. The manufacturer currently works with a hybrid line produce, producing both first and second generation e-jets at the same time. The executive also pointed out that E2 jets will account for about 20% of the commercial division's production this year. Commenting on the low E2 delivery rates, Embraer Aviation CEO Aviation said the increased production of new jets will take a hockey shot next year when deliveries of the redesigned aircraft finally must exceed the volume of the models of the first generation. So they've gone and built an aircraft that they knew they couldn't really sell to the American market because they knew it was a little bit big and they knew they got greedy trying to put extra seats in it. Um, and now they're just hoping that the unions in America will just accept just a few more thousand pounds in the mm. weight class. I think that's the same with the Mitsubishi uh, regional jets that they're hoping the the US pilot syndicates will agree a larger limit. I don't, uh, Armando, the American connection, what's what's happening with these pilot scope clauses? You know, this was, reading this article was the first I've, I'm not a commercial pilot, so um, that was news to me and it's something that I'll probably have to reach out to either my brother or some of my friends to uh, see what, what that all is about. Yeah, oh. and you're right, sir. It's Boeing Brazil, and uh, actually, Armando put the link in the chat room there. Uh, Boeing Brazil, because you, you, is it the one four five? Yeah, that you one three five, one four five. Yeah, and it covers the biz jets as well. Yeah. Mm. So it's quite a jump in passenger numbers over to the one nine five. So it's a hundred to one hundred twenty four from is it one hundred fifty that? Um, yeah, but it's this junk here. The E one seven five from seventy six to eighty eight increasing to the E2 version which is 80 to 90 passengers mm. uh, well it's not that I guess an extra two on the on the full size but the unions as I understood it in America the the unions these pilot unions it's a way that um, there's two classes of pay for pilots in America like the, the regional jet pilots and then the, the major league guys on the on the big boy aircraft so uh, they ha made an agreement that there'd be certain pay levels for the guys on the smaller planes um, and then if they got the opportunity to fly a bigger plane, they'd get paid more. Um, but this is the problem. The airline has then just been squeezing in, trying to squeeze in these bigger and bigger aircraft. Um, and then maybe the unions are still going to say no. But I don't know. Then if I was one of the pilots in the union, while I want more money, I'd also be thinking, well, I'd rather have a newer, safer aircraft than this 30-year-old thing that I'm flying at the moment. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> what do you think of this, uh, this aircraft, Nev, on a sort of short-haul mm, kind of thing? Interesting. Um, I was going to ask Stuart actually: is the um, is the one three five and one four five a, a common type rating for for training? Purposes? Yes, they are. Yeah, it's a common type rating. Um, it's I mean it's very similar. Uh, the one four five is a fifty seat variant, and the one three five is thirty five seats. Um, so the one four five is just a stretched version. But I, I I'm quite lucky in in my base here at Norwich. We've got we fly. We've got more one three fives and one four fives, and it's the more fun plane to fly because it's the same big engines. With the smaller aircraft, that's like yeah. <laughs> driving your... And 787 aircraft by adding more premium class seats and reduce economy class seating. The Star Alliance carrier says on eight triple seven two hundreds it will reduce the number of seats from 405 to 392. This will be done by raising the number of premium economy seats uh, from 21 to 28 and reducing the economy seats by 20 to 364. 
So the seat count on 11787-8 will fall from 335 to 312, where premium seat count will rise from 12 to 28 seats, and economy seats will fall from 323 to 284. As part of the changes, ANA will introduce new premium class seats made of advanced fabric. On the 19 aircraft, it will also feature a 15-inch touch panel seat monitor. That's not bad. And storage space below the monitor. These seats appear to be similar to the Z600 model produced by Safran Seats. The economy class seats are produced by Toyota Boshoku, whose uh, seats are already featured on 6, uh, 767-300s since 2015. On these 19 aircraft, ANA will add a 11.6-inch seat monitor to the seats. In addition, ANA is rolling out streaming-based in-flight entertainment for use on smart devices. These will feature nearly uh, 190 television programs along with video, music and e-books. Retrofitting starts on the selected 19 aircraft uh, begin uh, due to begin in the fourth quarter of 2019 and are expected to be completed by the third quarter of 2022. And it did not specify the cost to acquire and retrofit the new seats. ANA strives to set the standard for comfort on all flights, and a few things play a big part in passenger comfort as the seat, says its Vice President Hideki Kunugi. <laughs> These changes will allow ANA to meet shifts in demand while ensuring unrivaled comfort and convenience for our passengers. He said that we believe constantly working to improve the travel experience and these new seats will place ANA head and shoulders above the competition. Now, advanced fabric. We have heard about some interesting fabrics being used on seats. But I will say something, though. It, it's surprising how over the last kind of few years that premium economy is becoming more and more popular with uh, airlines. And obviously we spoke a few weeks ago i think it was that uh, emirates are now going to start planning to bring in a premium economy product on their mm -hmm. uh, flights which uh, i thought was uh, thought would happen at some point but um, i think premium economy is definitely uh, definitely becoming a popular buy for people who want to get that kind of you know business classy kind of feel with a slightly better seat better menu and stuff and yeah I think um, yeah, it's it's a good good way forward. I think premium economy nev. Uh, what what is that classed as on BA? It's called something different. I think, isn't it? Well, it's uh, World Traveller Plus. I see. Yeah. Uh, if you're on the uh, on the long haul sectors, and um, yeah, it's it, I think premium economy or World Traveller Plus is a good good compromise. But it's still you know it's quite a big hike uh, yeah. from the economy fare. But more and more people are prepared to pay it now. Um, because it does offer quite a nice, nice um, individual cabin area mm. as well. Uh, there's no, usually no more than, I don't know, 30, 25, 30 seats, something like that. So, uh, yeah, pretty nice, actually. Armando, have you uh, tried the premium economy experience on any airlines? Yeah, I have. I think travelling across the Atlantic, if I was ever upgraded, it was usually up to a premium economy and uh, I, I'm, I'm not really a big guy, so uh, it was nice to have the extra legroom. I, I hope this is not a, a podcast listened to by anybody, but I don't mind being in the back. No, I'm just kidding. Um, anybody's <laughs> welcome to upgrade me if I'm ever traveling. Uh, but uh, yeah, so the premium economy, uh, whatever 
the, each airline calls it. Uh, it it is it is nice. It's usually just nice to with all the the peripherals around it of of getting an extra bag or boarding first or seventh, which is still in group two or something like that. But I'd be really looking forward to these 15 inch monitors. That that looks pretty nice. Mm -hmm. Stu, have you ever uh, sampled a premium? No, it's only as you walk on board the plane and you go through and you see the, you just look through the curtain and go, oh, that's the super rich. And then, oh, well, these are the bitch people. And then, oh, there's people above me. And then I'm right at the back. <laughs> Sometimes I yeah, might nick a blanket is, on the, the way out. The difference is too that you see those seats and then you hang a left and go in the, the flight deck door, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. In that's the, the best seat in the house. Come on, Stuart. <laughs> Very true. Um, I was just going to say on this story though, ANA. I, I think they've got a bit of a reputation in Japan for because um, the Japanese airlines, and this is no to Japanese, but generally they're quite smaller, petite people. Uh, I think they've got a reputation a lot of the Japanese carriers for being the most crammed in. I think with like twenty-seven inch leg foot room or something on on a lot of their designs. So even a lot of mainstream Japanese people would probably be like, I've been tired of being stuck in a sardine can. They'll pay the extra. Have you flown INA before, Stu? Um, I probably have. I used yeah. to live in Japan for five yeah. years, so oh, yeah, I, I yeah. probably, yeah, I did. Mm. Um, just ne on some Never you tried INA? Before? No, not, not no. before. Only no. on the uh, Far Eastern routes, only ever done uh, Singapore. Mm. Mm. So, next story, uh, Nev, and it's uh, obviously we're going to go for a tech story for you. We are, but it's a very poor font. I'm going to give it three out of ten for the font. Uh, awful, absolutely awful. But it's on the lightreading.com, ironically, website. Um, and it's all about 5G. And uh, obviously there's quite large providers. I think people like AT&T, Verizon, uh, T-Mobile, and now GoGo. GoGo uh, uh, Go -Go are the in-flight service provider officially put its hat into the 5G ring announcing that it will build a nationwide 5G network by 2021. Company officials pointed out that GoGo will launch 5G at roughly the same time as AT&T and T-Mobile plan to offer their nationwide 5G services. Um, of course, GoGo's 5G service is going to look and perform much differently, whereas AT&T and T-Mobile are building 5G networks that are pointed at users on the ground. Uh, GoGo's 5G network will be pointed up at users in the air and airplanes specifically. Um, GoGo currently beams internet connections to airplanes in two different ways, via satellites in space or via towers on the ground. And GoGo has more airplanes connected to the terrestrial towers and uh, 1,694 commercial planes from the likes of Delta and United, as well as 5,348 private and business aircraft. Uh, that is connected via satellite, uh, which is uh, 1,100 total aircraft with a current backlog of 900. Uh, GoGo's current ground-based network uh, spans roughly 250 towers across the US and Canada and works in the licensed 850 megahertz band. Uh, more importantly, it's using the st uh, standard 3G, uh, a technology that's more than a decade old at this point. Well, last year, GoGo were well into a 4G LTE upgrade of its terrestrial network with more than 10 towers already installed, but had to cancel that project because it was using equipment from ZTE. Now, if you remember, the Trump administration last year temporarily banned U.S. businesses from working with ZTE and GoGo's 4G upgrade 
efforts were caught in the crossfire. So GoGo ultimately abandoned its 4G upgrade plan with ZTE and is now plunging ahead with 5G without ZTE. Uh, we're not using ZTE for this network, says GoGo's Mike Syverson, SVP of Engineering and Operations. Syverson declined to name GoGo's 5G equipment vendor, but he made it crystal clear that it's not ZTE. So what exactly will GoGo's 5G network look like? Syverson said that it will use unlicensed spectrum in the 2.4 gigahertz band, and it will use official versions of the 5G um, uh, release 15 specification. However, company officials are sure, uh, sorry, aren't yet sure if GoGo will use the standalone or non-standalone version of 5G. GoGo also plans to uh, operate its existing existing 3G ground-based network whilst constructing and launching its 5G network, likely using most, if not all, of its existing towers. So what can GoGo users expect from the company's new fancy 5G network coming in 2021? Well, company officials says that GoGo's current 3G network provides speeds in the 1 to 10 megabit range, and its forthcoming 5G network will support speeds which are 10 times faster. However, it'll be up to GoGo's individual customers as to whether they want to upgrade their planes to 5G, as each plane will require a new receiver to access GoGo's 5G network. But passengers on those planes won't need any special 5G equipment. Receivers on all of GoGo's planes broadcast internet connections to passengers uh, through Wi-Fi. And how much is that going to cost? Well, here's a surprise. They're not going to tell you at the moment. But I can imagine that it will be a premium price, won't it? 5G, because it's been rolled out uh, uh, here in the UK this week, I think, isn't it, Nev? Mm. Also, 5G is not just about higher speeds. It's about uh, much greater levels of connectivity in, in the home environment, as we've seen on, on in other articles. But, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how uh, this whole internet thing uh, on aircraft goes, and obviously 5G gives a lot more bandwidth. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that, uh, how that works. So, as the IT expert, what, what what different versions of 5G are there? 5G are there standalone or non-standalone? Well, it's a good question, and I'm glad you asked me that, Stu. Uh, but I'm not fully prepared for that. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, as usual, it's a bit like. Um, well, going back to the good old days of uh, VHS and Betamax, isn't it, really, for, for mm. video owners? Uh, the, they basically did the same job, um, but completely incompatible with each other. And, of course, these large networks um, rely heavily on multiple vendors uh, working together. Uh, and, of course, as this article mentions, because there's political stuff going on and there's um, you know trade deals going on or not going on in the case of uh, Mr. Trump... Yeah. Um, that then starts restricting where these things are rolled out uh, or whether there are high levels of duty on them. So it'll be interesting to see how this eventually works out. Are you that bothered by uh, having Wi-Fi on, on board, Stu? No, but I, I'd just be concerned about having new kinds of networks if it's connected to the hardware of the aircraft. Mm. I mean, that's one of the conspiracy theories with the Malaysian, isn't it, that maybe it was programmed to mm. fly away. Do you, do you um, have EFBs on the... Or with you on the yeah, electronic flight bags. Oh yeah, we have our iPads. Yeah, yeah, yeah company okay. iPads with all the uh, information. But they're obviously updated whilst you're on the ground using. You know, just yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Uh, but other airlines have different versions and uh, plug-in plug-in jobs on the desktop on, on in the cockpit that I upload. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I'd be concerned how hardwired it was. That was all. That would be my only concern. So moving on to the next story, Armando. 
and a bit of spot of trouble in Edinburgh. Yeah, that's the uh, from the BBC News. The uh, two planes came within 875 meters of each other at a Scottish airport. An investigation has found. The Air Accidents Investigation Branch, or the AAIB, report found that the landing Boeing 737 was less than one kilometer away from a departing Airbus A320 at Edinburgh Airport. The incident in August last year is described by investigators as a loss of separation between the two planes. The AAIB said it had been caused by delays and inexperienced staff. The airport's air navigation service provider has reviewed operations at Edinburgh, and taken a number of safety measures to improve procedures and on-the-job training for trainee air, uh, trainee air traffic controllers. More than 350 people were on both flights and no one was injured as a result of the runway incursion. In its report, the AAIB stated a landing Boeing 737 closed within, to within 875 meters of a departing Airbus A320 when landing at Edinburgh. The air traffic uh, the airport air traffic control service provider defined this as a runway incursion as the 737 was over the runway surface when the A320 was still on its takeoff roll. A combination of factors, including brief delays to the departure of the A320 and the speed of the Boeing 737 being higher than normal, led to the reduction in separation before the controllers became aware of the closeness of the aircraft. The trainee controller lacked the experience to solve to resolve the situation in a timely manner and the supervising on the job training instructor judged it safer to let the 737 land than initiate a go around in proximity to the departing aircraft. The report also noted that the crew of the departing Airbus were unaware of the situation throughout and therefore could not react to it. A spokesman for Edinburgh airport says safety is absolutely paramount in our operations priority shared by Air Navigation Solutions, which is the firm that provides air traffic control services at Edinburgh. And we have discussed this incident in depth with them. We are satisfied that the remedial measures put in place are robust and continue to regard safety as the number one priority. I did uh, take a look at the video that accompanies the story uh, from the AAIB and uh, I am not an air traffic controller by any means, but uh, I could see how, um, well, they, we, they sort of describe how the instructor air traffic controller was uh, not quick enough to recognize the, the loss of separation. And then the, the supervising training controller, uh, I, I could see how they would want to make that decision on the fly of, okay, well, well the conditions are terrible. These aircraft are are essentially in the same chunk of airspace. However, they're, they are a half mile apart. The Airbus is not going to be able to do anything. If the Boeing has to go around, they're going to have to do a straight ahead go around unless the controller issues a, an instruction for them to turn essentially over the runway in the middle of their go around. So I, I could see how sort of off the reservation, you know, not procedural, they, they would make the decision to go ahead and let, let that 737 land, even though there was a loss of separation. Stuart, any uh, thoughts? Um, well, there's a few more things I'd like to ask, really. Well, I'd need to know more about the case. I fly into Edinburgh quite regularly. <laughs> you do. Yeah. Um, uh, very regularly. <laughs> uh, sometimes, yeah, twice a day. Um, I stopped there. I was there the other weekend. They put me in a hotel there. We're flying out of there all weekend. It's one runway. 
Um, so and there's quite a lot of options. So, like you said, complex go round instructions could be given to the guy to turn right, turn left. There isn't really, apart from the city being nearby and some very big bridges, um, there's actually not there's not much aviation wise in close proximity. Um, and maybe on the day, I'd like to know what the winds were on the day um, because maybe he was saying about this other aircraft coming in close. Normally they give you uh, instructions to keep 160 knots, keep 140 knots or come back to your V-ref speed at 6 miles. They they kind of stagger you in and control your speed on the on the final. Maybe this trainee guy didn't didn't know what speed his V-ref might be and told him to come back to landing speed, but 737 was probably a Ryanair on a mission and with no fuel coming in at full pelt. <laughs> Maybe only dropped his gear at like uh, 100 meters above. Um <laughs> uh, I'm just yeah. So he was giving permission to the one to take off, but maybe the one coming into land hadn't been given proper instructions, and it might not even been the trainee guy. It might have been the controller before, because the controller before might have told him, "I'll do 180 knots down to four miles, please, because I've got five more aircraft in the hold. I'm trying to get through quick." So uh, some days I've got to Edinburgh before, and we've had to go into the hold because it, even though it's not that bigger air airport. Um, you return up at rush hour at 8 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock in the evening and there's a whole lot of international flights all arriving at once. So, yeah, s several issues that could be affecting it. Um, I don't, at the end of the day, it's about 875 metres. I don't think it's really that close. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was wondering, on a standard IFR day, single runway, is everything I could find was, was about three to five miles, depending on the, I was looking at regulations, not the the specific operating procedures for Edinburgh, but it's about three to five miles between aircraft, depending on what surveillance systems are working, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with, with regards to wake turbulence, we'll it. it's uh, time separations. Um, but yeah, depending on different radar class, then yeah, there's uh, gap separations, but I'm not an air traffic controller, so I, I don't know the exact... Gaps. Adam, Adam, where are you? <laughs> oh, yeah. We need Adam. Well, well, actually, we've got Graham Haley in the chat room, and he says 160 knots to four miles is fine, but there's little unknown inside four miles. You get to know roughly what to expect for different aircraft types. Yeah, exactly. So maybe the inexperienced controller wasn't sure what speed the 737 would have been coming in at. I mean, oh, he might have been. It's a wet day, so it looks wet there anyway in the photo, so I would imagine he would have been coming in full flat. But maybe not. He came in faster than he was expecting. But again, he was inexperienced. So, hmm. well, it's good to have you here, Stuart. Anyway, <laughs> at least. Well, we, sorry if I made any sense we, there. No, you're fine. <laughs> it's great. It's great. At least you. At least you fly into this air this uh, airport regularly. So, uh, I mean, if anyone's going to know anything about uh, yeah, it's, landing, it's, it's at a Edinburgh. lovely airport. They're really friendly. Um, Are they? Can't understand them all the time. <laughs> they've got these. Uh, really, the guidance systems at all the parking bays never work. Um, is that a lights lights guidance? Yeah, there's light there. guidance systems that park you onto the terminal. So it's always funny. There's always there's always there's like twenty guys all sitting there waiting for you. They're all staring at you, and only like five ten meters away from where you're meant to be parked. It's quite frustrating because I be you know we we could drive that five meters and stop, but no, we need to wait for a guy to quickly come over in his little van with his ping pong bats and just wave <laughs> us five meters in <laughs> because all the high tech guidance system is just packs up every time. Yeah. 
so but well, yeah it's a lovely anyway, runway beautiful conditions and you come in over the water as well there's a like oh, yeah. a hill there's an island I, I think there's a prison on it i'm not sure but there's a beautiful little island that you turn base on uh, yeah we did a visual approach there just a few days ago it was beautiful and all the bridges across whatever that famous scottish river is in edinburgh <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, never. Carlos. Now, now that we've got Stuart on for today, and we've got Graham in the chat room, we we may be able to get to fifty two percent accuracy, which will <laughs> put us just ahead of those other guys. Oh, <laughs> yeah! Don't mention that. Don't mention that. But what, what else is Graham saying in the chat room? Oh, what's what's Graham? Let's have a look and see what Graham's saying in the chat room. So we've got from uh, um, there's a matter of a probably uh, probably five to ten seconds in this uh, if the first one is wheels up before the lander crosses the start of the runway then this is perfectly safe regardless of what the distance is mm. yeah because uh, he wasn't in contact with the runway yeah yeah, yeah. so moving on to uh, the last story and uh, this one is, this is for you me, Stuart yeah this one well, why am I doing a, this this is, this is a Nev story isn't it I know but um, you know British Airways <laughs> bumps up Dubai Airbus A350 schedule this, this is good news for, for me 2020 Mm. <laughs> is it? I yeah. thought you were an Emirates man. Oh no! Well, uh, Nev's converted me. Oh yeah. Okay, British Airways has revealed it intends to boost its previous schedule of A three fifty one thousand XWBs on the Heathrow to Dubai route from March twenty twenty. Oh, I should just say this comes from SimpleFlying dot com. BA will take receipt of the new type in July this year. As we previously shared, the A350 will be flown between Madrid and Heathrow during the summer of 2019, and this will enable the crews to become familiar with the new cabin layout. Thereafter, the A350's Dubai selling date of 8th of October indicates the airline's plans to be up and running with long-haul Heathrow to Dubai flights in the latter part of this year. The latest revision suggests BA is confident that the new fleet additions will prove popular with customers. A Heathrow to Toronto route is being also being touted from the 1st of October. BA says a further three A350s will augment the fleet during this time and two Boeing 777 aircraft will be modified to match the A350's cabin config. A350, the first commercial flight of the A350, took place in 2015. The innovative fuselage provides passengers with great comfort, a higher cabin pressure and more natural humidity. The design also commands a lower maintenance cost. That's what the operators love. British Airways promises the interior of the A350 will instill passengers with a feeling of well-being, space and calm due to its reduced noise levels, high ceilings and ambient lighting. Over the next five years, the flag carrier says it plans to take delivery of 72 new aircraft, including the A350-1000. Boeing 787, A320 and A320neo. The fleet additions will be assigned to both short and long-haul routes. And some more information about replacing aircraft. Um, but Qatar Airways tops the chart of airlines with the highest number of A350s in service. The country's flag carrier has 37 aircraft of type in service. Free class cabin. Oh, and there's all these pictures of those nice seats that we mm. just walk by. Uh, Club World, Traveller Plus and World Traveller. Chief Executive of British Airways, Alex Cruz says the Club World product will offer direct aisle access and a personal door to allow a degree of privacy. The double seats in the centre of the cabin also feature a divide which can be slid open or shut to suit the occasion. And the configuration includes 56 seats of Traveller Plus. Uh, Traveller Plus customers are treated to a luxurious bedding. Restaurant-style catering courtesy of Austrian company Doe & Co. Enhanced connectivity and new lounges. 
Lastly, there are 219 sorry, World Traveller Economy seats to the aft, which is where we'll be sitting. The seats are expected to be arranged in a free-free-free config. Passengers seated here will have access to high-speed Wi-Fi and in-flight entertainment, complimentary drinks and a four-course meal. Wow. A ticket for the A350 also includes a generous baggage allowance. The airline, which is 100 years old on the 25th August this year, says it will roll out the new suites in a staged and deliberate phasing designed to minimise disruption to customers. So yeah, they're uh, going to Dubai. I, I wonder how much the actual creation of Emirates has created this as a business case for them. So the amount of expats and foreigners now travelling to Dubai in general because of the success of Emirates and the like has had made BA take up the route as well. Yeah, because Emirates offer a, a really good package even in, even in economy. Um, but I know their business class and their first class package is um, very nice. Um, I've seen up close and been up close and personal with the first class suite on board their triple seven uh, a few years ago at the air show, and it is, you know, really high end kind of stuff. But um, you know, we've seen on the show some of these new suites and the new um, you know, uh, seats and stuff that BA are, are putting into their aircraft. I think it's safe to say, Nev, I think BA are definitely upping their game when it comes to um, interiors. Well, they've had to, really, and you could say that they are, they've been a bit late to the party here because they've been waiting for these new aircraft for some time, and uh, as you said, the Middle Eastern carriers are streets ahead of them, uh, even in the economy sections, so they've had to do something big here. So I'm hoping uh, that despite what our current ticket says, we might actually get on one of these uh, in one direction for the Dubai air show, or coming back, don't know yet. Currently, I think we're booked on a... 744 it did say a 350 a few weeks ago and they changed it again but maybe they'll change it back we'll have to i certainly it. hope so if they train up enough crew i mean that's it they talk about it's for the cabin crew here flying to madrid and back but really that'll be for crew orientation flight crew um so they're all signed off on the aircraft uh, then once they've done enough sectors then they'll be able to do the they'll, other routes yeah, invite me and nev on yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Just a quick uh, story actually following on. Um, this one actually came out uh, today. Yeah, this is today, This um, not not long ago. Uh, regarding BA, actually, Nev, good news for um, uh, domestic flights because uh, BA are going to start to use uh, 7.4s uh, on domestic flights from August, Nev. So um, they're going to use the 7.4s uh, uh, from August the 25th uh, this year and they're going to use those on the London to Newcastle London to Manchester and London to Glasgow flights so they're going to be using uh, a, the 747 which is um, kind of a uh, must have a, a, a good uh, capacity of passengers who, who want to travel on that flight Nev to use um, the well, 74s yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, you don't want to have a full tank of gas and a full passenger load coming out of Newcastle do you because there's no. <laughs> the runway's not that long there so uh, they might be a bit restricted there but uh, yeah obviously for the short haul sectors you know flights of an hour or so they're not going to be carrying much juice so uh, but uh, yeah it'd be interesting to see it won't it and um, I, yeah. it has happened to me once before when I was coming back from 
Thank you, it's Edinburgh. Uh, for some reason, there was a no. Actually, it was Glasgow. The seven four ended up uh, replacing a, an A three twenty one just because of operational reasons. It was uh, yeah, it was quite nice being on a seven four just for that short flight. Uh, but uh, yes, yeah, and actually, for anyone, the story does say that I've just got here in front of me. That it does say for anyone in the UK who wants to uh, trial go on one of the, uh, the retro painted seven four sevens that BA have currently got in the air. Uh, the BOAC, Landor and Nagus uh, livery. Um, each flight that they're going to do with the 7.4s will be uh, utilized, or they'll be using one of these aircraft, so you'll be able to um, fly on the uh, retro-painted uh, 7.4s on these routes. So again, that'll be the London-Newcastle, London-Manchester and London-Glasgow. Mm. So perhaps you might get, you might see one of these, uh, Stuart, on your I'd travels. I'd like to go on the Landor yeah. one. Mm. I, I'm wondering if it's to do a promotion as well to connect people to Heathrow and... Uh, Onwards Airways flights, possibly BA flights, maybe a connection with that as well. Hmm. So that is where we bring the commercial news segment to a close this week. And we're going to hand things over to uh, Nev to introduce the next part of the show. Thank you very much, Carlos. Yes, do you remember a few weeks ago we were over at Duxford here in the UK for a very special listener meetup, which was brilliant. The weather was fantastic. Uh, some of us got a little bit sunburnt as well due to uh, operational difficulties, but uh, we'll just gloss over that. Um, but uh, we had some great times there, and um, whilst we were there, we recorded some interviews. And uh, one of the newest additions uh, at Duxford is the American Hangar, and it is extremely impressive. And one of the aircraft in there is the American F-4 Phantom. So who better than to talk us through this aircraft? It was uh, Captain Nick. And uh, Matt spoke to him. Nick, hello, nice to see you. Obviously, we were at Duxford having a great day. Oh, I'm enjoying myself so much, man. There's some lovely people here, you it know. Is, isn't it? Yeah, shame I haven't met any of them yet. Right, okay. Yeah, all strangers, absolutely. We're standing next to. Um, uh, you were saying actually this is the mili the the, um, the navy variant. Um, uh, yeah, that's right. This is the the navy F4 because we're in the American hangar. That's right. So. We don't mind that though, do we? Well, no, an F4 is an F4, and it was very similar to yeah. the, the British F4s, to be okay. truthful. It was the, the F4 that had most similarity. had uh, American engines in it, J79s, which we would have loved, but when our government decided to buy the F4, they said, well, we want a major British component put into these F4s because we're buying your American aeroplane. And the only thing they could think of was to put a Rolls-Royce engine in there as opposed to the American engine. The only engine they could think of to put in was a Rolls-Royce Spey. Now the Spey was an airliner engine. It wasn't really built for fighters. And it was a big fat engine. And when they put it in there, it made a big fat Phantom, sadly. It also really had problems uh, having a reheat fitted. And not many civil airliners had reheats. Can you think of one? No. <laughs> Nev can. Ne Nev's not yes. in his head. Go on, Go on Nev. Nev. The Concorde, of course. The Concorde, of course. The Concorde, of course. Oh, no, really. I know. I've never said I was any good at this. <laughs> <laughs> so the Concorde was the only civil airliner, apart from uh, Western. There were some Russian ones, of course, that had reheat. But So, big problems fitting reheat to a civil uh, engine. So when they first tried it, it kept blowing the engine out or it kept surging the engine uh, and they decided that the only way this reheat was going to work 
as if they made it light very slowly. Now, five seconds may not seem a long time to you, but in the military world, when you need that extra thrust, five seconds is a huge amount of time. And that's how long it took us to light the reheats in the British Phantoms, because of the fact that we had these big fat um, American engines in there. So you'd rock the throttles outboard, and you'd smash them forward to get reheats, and then you watch the nozzles, and the first thing they did was open a bit, which reduced your thrust even more. And then they'd go to quarter, half, and then they'd finally light the full power, and you'd get the real whoomph as you were pushed back in your seat and the reheats light. But that's, you know, that's a long time to wait for that extra thrust. So that was a disadvantage. So what sort, what sort of speed um, were, were you able to get out of? So, so let, let's go with the American uh, variant here. This variant was uh, truly Mach 2 capable and its maximum airspeed would have been around 600 knots, somewhere around there. And how would that compare to with the, with the English variant? What, how well, we, were, we had the same statistics, but in reality, when you do your cutaway shot, you'll notice that this has a nice slim fuselage. From the intakes, the fuselage slims down and then fattens out towards the end, and that's called area rule. Uh, and the idea is to keep the cross-sectional area of the aircraft uh, resembling an ogival body. Uh, basically two bullets, one attached to another, it goes from a point to a fat bit to a point, and that's an extremely efficient uh, shape for supersonic speed. Going through the when we put our big fat engines in, no longer did it have this coke bottle effect, this wasting in the middle, uh, it was fat in the middle. So it went pointy, fat, 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 pointy, which wasn't very good. So we could never get Mach 2 out of our aircraft. Uh, it was not as efficient. 1.8 was about the fastest I ever got one of our Phantoms to. So uh, what, what environment would you tend to be using these, these particular aircraft for? What was their main tactical uh, purpose? Well, when we got them, they were a true multi-combat aircraft, a multi-role combat aircraft. We used them in Germany doing uh, ground attack. Um, we used them for photo reconnaissance. We used them off our carriers. Uh, in the naval version, and we use them in air defence as well. They had all that capability. It was uh, really quite a remarkable aeroplane. So it could bomb things. It had pretty impressive guns. Uh, it had lots of missiles. So it could do a multitude of roles, all of which it did very well indeed for the period. So is this uh, this particular aircraft? Was this what you predominantly flew when you were in the air force? Yeah, I spent uh, more or less ten years at Lucas six of which I would have been flying this. I got over a thousand hours uh, sitting in the cockpit there, which doesn't seem a lot in civil flying, no. but in military flying, a thousand hours gives you a lot of piles. Yeah. <laughs> right, okay. Paying for that now then. Yeah. yeah. The, um, how, how long would each mission usually last? Well, with a normal tank of gas, uh, so we had two tanks, wing tanks, we call Sergeant Fletchers, and a full fuselage, we'd do about an hour and a half mission. If you were doing combat, it would be less, well less than an hour. And that included transit, so you go 20 minute transit, fight for 20 minutes, 20 minute transit home. So you could eat up your fuel pretty quickly. If you put the maximum fuel load on it, so three big external tanks, full internals, you could empty the aircraft in 20 minutes total. Wow. So that's, yeah, in full reheat, that's how fast the fuel pipes are like this big. And that's what was necessary to feed the engines to keep that, uh, that round of thrust going so you could empty it very quickly. But commonly, 
we wouldn't waste our amount of fuel that quickly. We'd do two-hour missions. If we had three bagger, three tanks on, it would be a two-and-a-half-hour mission. If we're on QRA with a tanker supporting us so we could go back to and refuel whenever we wanted, uh, I've done six-and-a-half, seven-hour missions. Uh, and on long transit, same thing. So we could fly non-stop from North Scotland to Cyprus. Uh, so long as we had tankers there uh, to support us. And uh, we would regularly take the aircraft across the Atlantic. Again, so air-to-air -air refueling, essentially. Yeah. So, yeah. so just on the far side of the cockpit, there's a uh, long, thin panel. And at the flick of the switch, uh, a big probe with a knobbly bit on the end, which is probably best not described, considering you like to keep <laughs> this clean. family show, ladies and gentlemen, family Thrust show. forward. So it, it is actually telescopic and stops about a beam uh, just forward of the pilot's head and that was our air every refueling probe and then we'd come up behind a tanker who would be trailing a long hose with a basket on the end and uh, we would line up try not to watch the basket because that was led to trouble you would line up on markings underneath the fuselage wait for the lights to change because it was all done if you could without radio on a light a sequence of colored lights on the back of the tanker you close up, come to a waiting position, and then walk forward at a walking pace, which sounds very odd when you're doing several hundred miles an hour, but literally you close on the tanker at a walking pace and fly up the line of the hose, and hopefully the basket would be taken aside by the, the bow wave of the aircraft to just the right spot to nestle under the end of your probe, and you'd make contact continue to push up and all the valves would then turn in the uh, hoodoo, the pod that the hose came from and the tanker guy would start giving you fuel and uh, within a few minutes he'd have topped you up and uh, you could withdraw and disappear off and go and do some more fighting. So if you're flying from, from Scotland to uh, Cyprus as you were mm -hmm. saying, how many times would you need to refuel during that, that, that flight? Yeah, about four probably. So we go from Scotland to just uh, around the English Channel the French never liked us refueling over France. I don't know what it is about the French, and, but they, we had to refuel just before we entered French airspace. Then we were be, a bit desperate when we came out the other side of France and uh, hit the Mediterranean, but uh, we'd have a bracket straight after that. And by that time, the first tankers would have been drier fuel. They couldn't have given us any more because we're normally in quite a big formation and lots of us are doing this, which has a certain amount of peer pressure because everybody's watching you try and make your contacts and every time you miss, scores are taken. And we know that the first round... 8.4, yeah. The first round is uh, always uh, paid for when we landed at Cyprus by the man who missed the most. Right. So he would then dive off into somewhere like Sardinia and another tanker would come out <coughs> excuse me, and join us and we'd have another series of refueling brackets into uh, Cyprus and then uh, you know, we'd we arrive in Cyprus usually with so much fuel we'd have to burn it off by beating up the airfield. So uh, whose responsibility is it essentially? Is it the tanker stays where it is and you go to the tanker or is it a little bit of both uh, in regards to hooking up to, to take on fuel? Yeah, there was a series of different types of joins. Generally speaking, the fighters like to do it because we, our lives, More agile. Yeah, and our lives were spent doing intercepts. So the, the navigator would control the intercept and roll you out at about half a mile behind the tank and you just close up that last bit. But if we had an unserviceable radar or couldn't turn, then the tanker could do his own thing. Mm. But it took a lot of setting up and they weren't very practiced at it, so... 
do you, I mean, you, you, you talk about this aircraft with a lot of love. I mean, oh, most certainly, yeah, absolutely. It was a, a real war horse, uh, and I think a very impressive and terrifying airplane, quite yeah. honestly. But um, yeah, I spent a lot of time uh, flying it, so yeah, I've got a great love for it. Thanks, Nick. Pleasure. He's gone off for his lunch. <laughs> He's gone off for your lunch. Hello. I'll tell you what, Nick has got, um, well, he's got more stories than that, he's, he's like oh, the, yeah. the walking uh, Wikipedia, Encyclopedia Britannica of uh, military stuff is, uh, is Nick, but I think Micah made a comment actually in, uh, was it in the chat room just a minute ago saying that, uh, there we go, that's, that's the military segment done. <laughs> yeah, right, I, I didn't get the memo, I didn't, I don't, I, I don't know if I can follow Nick. What do you think of that, uh, Nev? A, a, a fantastic piece of videography there by uh, by you. Oh, I just pointed the camera. That was, that was the easy bit. But um, no, it's great, wasn't it? And uh, no, Nick's encyclopedic knowledge, obviously he knows the aircraft extremely well. But it was absolutely great to hear him talking so passionately as he as he does about it. So it was uh, great. And um, it, we, I did notice actually, you won't have seen that from that shot. There's a sort of a, another group of people sort of turned up behind us, thinking, "Who's that? Well, who was they interviewing? Is he an important chap? <laughs> Obviously, he's not. He's very uh, important. Um, you know." So. <laughs> Uh, but uh, that was great. So it's always good to go around an, an aircraft museum with uh, Captain Nick in tow. All we need to do now, really, is find a museum that houses a, a, an A340 or, or, you know, A330, let's just say. And, uh, oh. yeah, get uh, Nick there to uh, talk about that. Oh. <laughs> Armando's smiling. <laughs> Actually, while you're there, Armando, we're going to hand things over to you to introduce the military aviation segment. Yeah, like I said, I don't know if I can follow Nick on anything military. That that was that was pretty good, and I love hearing uh, his experience, his firsthand experience, especially when it comes to drinking games and saying, "Hey, if you miss the plug on the first time, you're buying rounds at uh, at the bar." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, all that being said, yeah, we have a couple military stories. We'll go through them fairly quick, and uh, if you guys are ready, I'm ready. We'll, uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and do it. Yeah, ready. Go. All right, so this first story is from technologyreview.com. So I think uh, today we're, we're going to be uh, tech-heavy, uh, which may be the, the episode title or something like that. But uh, the U.S. Air Force, one of the most advanced fighting forces in the world, is worried about losing that edge in the age of artificial intelligence. To address that, uh, it recently announced a collaboration with the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, that will focus on developing and harnessing AI. The Air Force Artificial Intelligence Accelerator will focus on the uses of AI for the public good, meaning applications relevant to the humanitarian work done by the Air Force and not directly connected to the development of weapons. That caveat might be key in preventing a backlash from students and the community, although that's far from certain. The Air Force already funds a huge amount of research and development, has contracts or agreements with over 10,000 different entities, 
It spends 2.5 billion US dollars a year on basic and early stage research and 25 billion on research and development of applied technologies. The new relationship with MIT will see the Air Force contribute $15 million a year to do cooperative research. 11 Air Force members will work along MIT professors and students on a range of projects. The U.S. Department of Defense already has an MIT research center called Lincoln Labs or Lincoln Laboratory. Uh, it's not yet clear how this collaboration will go down, especially since the military's previous efforts to collaborate with industry have proved problematic. Most notably, a project involving Google Cloud's AI team, uh, or Google's cloud AI team, uh, established through a program known as Maven, sparked a backlash among employees. Daniela Russ, director of MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab, where the incubator will be embedded, argues that the types of problems that will be tackled are of broad interest to academic researchers. They are extraordinarily important problems. In disaster relief, you are in an environment where you cannot anticipate that the maps work, that things are where they are supposed to be. All of these applications have a great deal of uncertainty and complexity. Ms. Maria Zuber, uh, Vice President of Research at MIT says the collaboration will only involve those who have shown an interest in helping the Air Force with its objectives. No one will be forced to collaborate, she says. Zuber is also keen to reassure anyone worried that the collaboration could involve development of weapons technology. MIT does not do weapons research, she says. Um, this is a good article. I, you, you know, it it, uh, we talk a lot about the advancing technologies, the emerging technologies that have been um, employed in the F-35, the F-22, the B-21, and probably many aircraft that haven't, we haven't even heard of. Um, but during my military career, I was lucky enough to spend three years at a research and development lab and it was nothing short of impressive of what um, you could you could get accomplished with young engineers and young researchers that were either graduate students or working as part of research programs um, that were sort of just on the on the periphery of government acquisitions where the government is a big machine. But every time I and I've I've been to Lincoln Labs and MIT and, and University of Texas and some of our um, academic partners in, in R&D. And, and it, it is incredibly impressive. And, and I don't know that a lot of people know that, that that's a great way for us main, to maintain that technological edge over um, our adversaries is to include the civilian sector and uh, academia in that. So very cool story. And, and I'm looking forward to, see, uh, to seeing what, what evolves out of this. I think we all agree that the youngsters today, the younger generation, are incredibly tech savvy. You know, the you know young kids nowadays have you know iPads, tablet devices, stuff like that from a young age. And um, yeah, it's it's good when you know they're like the U.S. Air Force is kind of um, I don't know, it's they're kind of using I suppose that whole kind of younger generation being very tech savvy to develop things themselves like this which i think is really good i don't think it matters what kind of tech stuff. oh sorry carry on 
No, it's okay. Don't listen to me. Just turn my <laughs> microphone off. You didn't want to hear what I had to say. No, yeah, um, no, I was just going to say, yeah, um, it doesn't really matter what technology it is. Uh, MIT say that any technology out of any university, if it if if there's a military aspect to it, it will be used. It doesn't really... You can't really stop that. So... Um, they can't kind of like the Google thing saying they when they found out they were making software for shooting droids or something. Um, that, that's any technology can be applied in a military sense, so you can't really stop it. Um, so they shouldn't use well, it as an excuse not to, to progress technology. Is what you know, just thought. earlier we were talking about the five G article, and uh, obviously there's there's going to be um, interactive systems in any military aircraft and. They're using a lot of this, the same technologies that, uh, you know, to push data to a satellite or to another station. And who better to develop or at least inspire that data or that technology than the people that are working on it for the private sector? Mm-hmm. And a lot Indeed. of this stuff gets published in, in academic journals where um, the Air Force won't, it won't say hey, you know, solve this entire problem set, it will just offer up a, a portion of it to an academic partner and say, hey, we've got this one widget that we can't get just right or we don't even know where to start. And, you know, you're talking about some baseline, uh, some base algorithms that that will take years for somebody like MIT to develop. Um, and And you may offer that problem set up to different academic partners and see which one comes up with the best solution for your applications. But the the academic partner never sees the end result, but they get to keep all the intellectual rights to, to the research that they conducted. So it's, it's a, it's a really unique relationship Mm -hmm. between the government and, and, uh, and academia. And uh, I don't know that a lot of people know about it and it's, it's, it's a great relationship. Is yeah, it no, is it the same in the industry you're in, Nev, uh, with with audiovisual stuff that um, a, a lot of younger people are now kind of you know coming into that kind of industry? Yeah, it's it, actually it's quite difficult to attract them because uh, if they come straight out of university with you know media degrees and, and that kind of stuff, uh, then go and get quite well paid jobs in uh, in London or any of the bigger cities in in the UK. Um, but uh, we're always trying to attract new people, and uh, it is quite difficult um, because you've kind of got to start at the bottom, really. But um, the people that are leaving school and, and leaving university or college, obviously, they, they are extremely tax savvy, so they have to be using the same sort of gear that they, that they used to. Um, but uh, no, we, we um, there's a lot of programs and mentoring programs going on around the world at the moment in our industry, trying to find new talent because old guys like me keep getting recycled, and that's. That's never a good thing, is it? Let's be honest. So moving on to the next story. And as we said, this is an incredibly tech-heavy show this week. Yeah, we definitely definitely need that uh, the tag for the show this week, Armando. Uh, F-35, this is on popularmechanics.com. F-35 fighter pilots might soon fly with robotic wingmen. So uh, one fighter jet could control many unmanned jets, uh, changing the face of aerial warfare forever. The U.S. Air Force is investing, uh, investigating how to control unmanned drones from its uh, latest fighter jets, uh, the F-35A Joint Strike Fighter and the F-15EX. 
Uh, the unmanned fighters would uh, act as wingmen to manned fighters, scanning the skies for aerial threats. And the program would also capitalise on the Air Force's Skyborg artificial intelligence system and a new XQ-58A Valkyrie drone. Under the concept, future ver uh, versions of the F-35A Joint Strike Fighter and F-15 EX Eagle would be equipped with the hardware and software to control multiple semi-autonomous drones. The drones would accompany manned fighters to enter combat, flying ahead of them with their radar switched on to detect enemy planes. And meanwhile, the manned mothership fighter would operate with its radar turned off, making it harder to detect. Once the drones detected an enemy, the target, the uh, pilot can launch the missiles. The robotic wingmen in the Air Force's scenario are XQ-58A Valkyrie unmanned drones, built by Kratos Defense and outfitted with the Air Force's Skyborg artificial intelligence system. Skyborg is being designed to act either as a robotic co-pilot assisting a human pilot in operating his aircraft or as a system to control a drone like the XQ-58 in combat. The wingman concept is intriguing because it's, uh, as Defense News explains, the Air Force can go from a formation of four manned fighter jets, all armed with radar and missiles, to a flight of four manned and unmanned jets, including three radar-equipped drones and one manned fighter jet armed with radar and missiles. Scaled upward, four manned jets can now uh, control 12 unmanned jets, allowing the Air Force to put more planes in, up in the air without increasing the number of pilots it needs. The XQ-58 can fly at subsonic speeds, carry a payload of 500 pounds and fly up to 1,500 miles. It's clear that for now the Air Force is thinking such a payload would be a radar or infrared sensor, but once uh, the ethics of drones firing on humans is worked out, if it ever, the uh, payload could include air-to-air -air or air-to-ground weapons. According to the Defence News, an aircraft or drone combo would be ready for flight as soon as 2023, the same year that improved F-35s will refreshed computers and electronic systems will be rolling off these assembly lines. Hmm. That is uh, quite interesting, actually, Armando. Oh. To, uh, I suppose it, uh, as a safety aspect... Um, not having so many pilots in the skies flying, I suppose, is is good to you know in case anything does go wrong. But isn't this doing pilots out of the job? <laughs> um, well, sure. Um, I I don't know. I don't know what what it's going to look like. Or you may just have uh, quite literally just swarms of aircraft in the sky where one pilot in one aircraft can control an entire uh, squadron of, of, of airplanes, you know, and, and you can in overwhelm an adversary fairly quickly if, you know, if you bring in six, six of your best friends to the fight um, and they're showing up with one. Um, so I, I, you know, I, it's another one of these things where I, you almost expect it to be the way it's going to be in the future future of warfare is going to look like this where artificial intelligence and machine learning and pilots as systems operators is going to be a thing so what do you think about all this kind of you know yeah michael o'leary will be watching this going oh i could do that with my 737 fleet <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I don't. I don't think it's a cost-cutting thing by them with pilots. So it is just tacticals. Uh, I mean, swarms of drones is is the way forward for from an aerial point of view. And on mass, it is a numbers game, isn't it? The wins. Um, one thing though, it's interesting. It says about the ethics of being shot by the drone. But I guess later on, if 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 there's one pilot with four drones next to him, he can say it's just an extension of his gun. So he's the one firing the the gun that kills. If it, if you know what I mean, it's not then the drone. If it, it's not like he's on, in a remote control base on a ground twelve thousand mm. miles away on the other side of the he's world. There. He's actually there well, with the yeah. aircraft whilst shooting. That, that's where we'll see with the artificial intelligence. Is will the will the pilot? Uh, remain in command of those of those unmanned vehicles, or will the will they have the capability to uh, evaluate their own targets? You know, yeah. that's that's probably what MIT's working on. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I would know. I was thinking maybe the main pilot he go he puts his one on autopilot and then suddenly turns around and puts the VR headset on and flies <laughs> the other one that's next to him. I don't know. Uh, VR yeah. headsets. But then he's got to fly five aircraft at once. Could could be a work overload. <laughs> yeah, my, Micah in the chat room says, "Didn't we see this in Star Trek?" Uh, yes, <laughs> that's probably the inspiration for some some young engineer somewhere said, "Ah, Gene Roddenberry's idea. I think we can. <laughs> I think we can make that work now." <laughs> well, they're working on warp engines. I think I, I remember seeing that there's there's, yeah. you know, there's talk about there's some kind of. Uh, Propulsion system they were. Yeah, there on. was some Hollywood movie, wasn't there, where there was they had some robot plane flying with them. Um, I don't I'm know. looking I to Armando's screen. Come <laughs> <laughs> well, some American Hollywood movie. <laughs> <laughs> so Nev, moving on to the next story. Uh, oh, your favourite website, Nev? Yes, it is. It's Flight Global, known for its fantastic font, and I'm going to give it nine and a half out of ten this week. Um, it says that uh, France has brought forward by 12 months the launch of its tri-service uh, helicopter program called HIL, enabling first delivery of the uh, Airbus helicopters H160M in 2026. Uh, Paris had previously planned a 2022 launch for its Rosacraft renewal effort, which will replace five types with just one with deliveries set for later that decade. Announcing the revised timeline, French Defence Minister Florence Parly said that the speedy introduction of the H-160M will enable the country's armed forces to maintain their advantage over adversaries. Also unveiling a mock-up of the helicopter, which will appear at the forthcoming Paris Air Show, Parley described the H-160M as versatile, modern and incredibly fast. Um, she says that the uh, H-160M will be known as the Cheetah and it will perform missions including reconnaissance, fire support, infiltration of special forces, anti-shipping and airspace protection. Uh, Paris has previously indicated that it will buy 169 H-160Ms under the HIL effort, 80 for the Army, 49 for the Navy and 40 for the Air Force. Um, she says, uh, our teams are committed to delivering an aircraft in 2026 that meets the needs of the French armed forces in terms of availability, performance and capability, thus enabling the H-160M uh, to rapidly become Camera. the new benchmark on the world's military lift, me uh, military helicopter, sorry, world's medium lift 
on the military helicopter market. France in 2017 selected the H-160M for the HIL program with the 6.5-ton uh, class twin-engine helicopters destined to replace a number of uh, elderly types in the, in the country's infantry, including gazelles and alouette 3s. So there we go. That's some uh, rotary news for you. Got a love bit of helicopter news. I was actually speaking to uh, to one of the, my friends who works on the same uh, industrial estate that I work on at the moment, and, and uh, he's actually got his uh, helicopter license, and he has no interest whatsoever in fixed wing <laughs> at all. Um, and uh, I said, well, I, I haven't got much interest in helicopters either. So, yeah. what do you think about this, Armando? The H one sixty M. Yeah, this is great. This anytime you can take one platform, one airframe, and make it into a multi-role, just like Nick was talking about with the F four. Um, there's there's a lot of great examples. You know, the C one thirty is one of those examples. The the UH one Huey. You know, there's uh, it's cost effective. It reduces the training burden for crews that can now flow back and forth between different missions. So, I think the uh, the French uh, military is on a good path with this uh this uh interoperable aircraft so actually i'm gonna try and bring a here we go here a picture of it actually looks quite nice as helicopters go <laughs> yeah i feel like the the french have managed to make a tactical helicopter look really pretty <laughs> <laughs> Answers in uh, and uh, that rotor blade is designed to go fast. Look at the uh, the blend of the wingtip, the way it's ducted back like a boomerang. Oh, yeah. It's uh, very fast. Yep. Answers on the postcard chat room. Tell us what you think of uh, of this uh, this helicopter. There we go. Oh, so that is uh, not where we bring the military news to a close because uh, Stuart has got uh, an update actually, and um, uh, this is on the one of the stories that we covered. Um, a few episodes ago, and Armando, this is one of the ones that you put in about the D-Day squadron, wasn't it? And, and uh, yeah. Stuart, you've got a story there. Well, I've got another co-host as well for the show here with me. <laughs> oh. Al Alfie's joined Al us. Alfie has joined us. Uh, obviously, he was really excited about this story, and he wanted to get involved, didn't you, Alfie? Uh, Emery Riddle helps get warbirds back to Normandy. Uh, students and the faculty of Emory, Niddle, Emory Riddle Aeronautical University will provide crucial weather support to 15 vintage World War II C-47 DC-3s and variants, nicknamed Dakotas as they cross the Atlantic to celebrate the 75th anniversary reenactment of the Norman Normandy invasion. This historical mission will allow me to include my students in understanding transoceanic weather support in a real-world scenario said Professor Debbie Schwam, Associate Chair and Associate Profes Professor of Meteorology in Emery Riddle's Applied Aviation Sciences. Professor Schwam is <laughs> joined in the effort by Dr. Sean Milrad and Dr. Daniel Halperin and Central Florida News 13's Rob Iker, all Assistant Professors of Meteorology at Emery Riddle. Unlike modern commercial aircraft, the vintage planes are more restricted by inclement weather. They have limited internal climate control, and even more importantly, sorry, the dog is uh, <laughs> jumping all over, <laughs> all over the place. And uh, more good boy, importantly, Alfie. good well, uh, the de-icing varies by aircraft, so the pilots need to be informed of areas of potential icing. Icing. 
On May the 13th, uh, 2019, the Emery Riddle Weather Support Team put out its preliminary assessments during the weather posed challenges for the aircraft, which were scheduled to depart from Oxford on May the 19th, 2019. There are many problems with the East Coast this week, said the Professor. We actually have a nor'easter off the coast of New England, bringing in lots of moisture, with low ceilings and even a mix of rain and snow possible for parts of Maine and Canada. At this point, all aircraft successfully launched from Oxford CT. The fleet are scheduled to land for refuelling in Newfoundland, Greenland, Iceland and Scotland, at airports selected because they would have been refuelling points for these aircraft during World War II. As part of the original Bruce Spruce route, the aircraft will then join an international fleet of Dakotas in England before flying to France to participate in the D-Day commemorative events on June the 2nd to the 9th, which is planned to involve a June the 5th drop of 200-plus parachutists outfitted in period World War II Allied uniforms into historical drop zones. Several aircraft are currently on the ground across Goose Bay, Nazaruk, Rejavik and Preswick. We can't determine anything until the night before each planned departure and Garrett Fleischmann, an Emory-Riddle undergraduate. Fleischmann is responsible for helping to connect the university to the mission to fly the planes from the US to Europe. A pilot majoring in unmanned aircraft systems, Fleischmann approached Professor Schwarm in January after she told a class he was in about Emory Riddle providing weather support for the annual Air Race Classic events. Uh, she's been all for it, said Fleischmann. We've been extremely excited and motivated to get the aircraft across safely. Uh, it's an epic story, really. And mm. These parachutists um, are actually at my local parachute club. It's a bit of a coveted thing now that um, a lot of the parachute clubs, they're trying to get tickets on these uh, a classic aircraft to drop. Um, and, uh, yeah, this is the right mission that they're breaking down along the route. I mean, what do you expect? They're a World War II aircraft 80 years on trying to fly across the ocean and reenact something. Um, so they need this weather support. Uh, if I was crossing the Atlantic as well. I'd Especially in the DC-3. Yeah, exactly. I still maintain I, I, that is on the bucket list. I, I just would love to get a flight on a DC three. That's gonna have to gonna notch that one up somewhere. Actually, Armando, I was looking at some uh, some stats on Embry Riddle, and um, I was looking at their graduation rate and their acceptance rate. Their graduate um, graduation rate is twenty two percent. Yeah, I think. Embry Riddle is arguably the the largest and most well known aviation higher institution. Um, so uh, I'm not sure if that counts. Embry Riddle has a fairly large worldwide campus and online campus, so I don't know if if they account for those numbers. Um, but the I would say the the predominant I don't know the exact numbers, but um, the predominant amount of students are there to conduct pilot training um and it's like anything else you go to college and you sort of cross major and you decide ah maybe this isn't for me but they also do everything aviation related uh, operations management weather meteorology uh, maintenance so embry riddle is a very large school so I, i'm not i'd have to dig in a little bit to see how they get that 22 percent number um but uh the reason i chose that story is is just to show a little bit of the effort that it takes to get th this is all volunteer stuff there the dakotas going across the ocean uh, is all funded by private organizations they're all privately owned aircraft uh, and companies different aviation companies and institutions like embry riddle are really chipping in to to help them and it, and it really does take an 
entire machine to get them over there. But since this is PTUK, um, a UK-based podcast, the time is now to probably get to the Duxford, Coventry area and see these aircraft because um, they're going to be staging there uh, until just short of the, the actual D-Day anniversary. Wow. And then they'll be in France for a couple of days after that. So if you're there, I know if I was still in the UK, I would absolutely take a trip down there to, to see this uh, squadron, this D-Day squadron uh, of aircraft down there, if you get the chance. Yeah. If we have any field reporters, they can report back to us. <laughs> <laughs> we do. We have, we have reporters everywhere across the globe across the globe so that is where we bring the military news to a close and uh, before we wrap up the show we'll have to have a quick catch up with Stuart obviously as we said at the top of the show uh, you know you had uh, the last time you were on the show you had that uh, bad news when uh, the airline you were were working for all, all of a sudden uh, yeah ceased yep. to exist indeed so, so you um, obviously that came as a bit of a shock I'm it, guessing it did um Although at the same time being a pilot, I always remember uh, I met an airline pilot one time and I was looking for that first job and he said, oh, don't worry, when I had my first job, I thought I was sorted. Uh, I had uh, three airlines go uh, bust on me in my first year. <laughs> he had three different type ratings and three different jobs in his first year of employment back in the 70s in the oil uh, crash. Mm. So I kind of always known it was going to happen at some point and it happens to most pilots at one point in their career. Um, but yeah, it did come as a shocker. Um, at the time, I thought the company was doing well, and they had all these new routes and great news. Mm. But it's turned out in my favour. I've now got a base literally down the road from me, and I'm flying the aircraft that I like, and uh, yeah, it's generally worked out. The only thing is delayed is me getting my command, because with BMI, I was booked on an April command course. So with, uh, with Tartan Air, who you fly for now... Um, are they using obviously using the same type of aircraft that you flew with BMI? Yeah. Um, are they BMI's old aircraft or have, or have they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They old are. aircraft. Uh, you can sometimes see the kind of Union Jack painted through the tartan. <laughs> oh right, okay, okay. <laughs> Armando. Sorry, I. We got a weather warning just out of nowhere that says it's going to be sixty mile per hour winds and hail here, and it's a beautiful, clear, sunny day. So um, my lovely bride is outside right now, putting the cars into the garage. Um, my my question to to uh, to Stuart was th the training. So you went to a new airline. Did they just accept all of your previous training, or did you have to go through? Interesting. Yeah. Um, apparently, they got a dispensation from the CAA to do a short term conversion operators OCC operators something conversion course. Um, and it was literally just three days in an office in Glasgow uh, where it was more really just uh, telling us about how to fill out our holiday forms and payroll forms. <laughs> there should have been more actual useful information to, to how the Tartan company did things. Um, but legally, that's all we needed because we were all current on the aircraft, um, safety-wise trained. And all of the my previous airline's SOPs were, were adopted by the Tartan airline. So we're still using the same SOPs as before, and we were all current. Uh, oh, wow. So, yeah, it's it's unusual because normally an airline, it would have to have selection criteria and choosing staff and then obviously training and indoctrinating them into their own SOPs. But it it's a very unique case. How different an airline is um, the air, you know, Tartan Air, who you fly for now, 
to uh, BMI. Well, they seem like a really good um, bunch of operators. Uh, they only uh, really nice people um, seem to care, and uh, all all the personal contact I've had with them has been really good. Uh, the only thing is, though, for any new company that suddenly has an increase in staff of 30-40% and uh, a whole new fleet of aircraft and also it's not just a fleet of new aircraft for them it's going from traditional turboprops suddenly to having a jet fleet so it causes a whole host of new kind of dilemmas that their ops department aren't used to and and really just the sheer number game of one small company suddenly increasing by nearly 50% in size so there's a lot of growing pains going on at the moment uh, Micah, our main man Micah, uh, has <laughs> asked a question. Tartan Air, are the pilot uniforms all kilts? <laughs> no, fortunately not. <laughs> uh, the cabin crew, they have some nice tartan dresses, um, okay. but the gents don't have kilts. I don't know if it's available. There might be something for the head office staff, I don't know. So Maybe uh, for the company Christmas party. Yeah. <laughs> so your routes and are they mainly in the UK or do you do because you used to do a lot of European routes with yeah, uh, BMI mainly in the UK um, but there is future plans so they um, I can't really comment because I don't really know what the other future routes are but with the new the, the new jets for Logan Air there's a lot of opportunities to go further afield the thing is the branding though is still Scottish so how can they do a flight from Norwich to say Paris or Dublin but still call it a Scottish airline I'm not sure about but there's those kind of routes in the future and we do a lot of business and uh, charter flights still because we're the only operator in the UK with these kind of jets that are good for shipping around like football teams etc so f for those uh, for those of you who stalk you on on apps such as roster buster that's as just, I do that's just you <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I know you do you do a heck of a lot of uh, segments during a day into the same airports and back and, and to the same airport and back and to the same does that not get at the moment, no, no, I guess it could yeah. do, you know, a few years down the line, but at the moment it's always quite interesting. There's it, always stuff new, and uh, mm. it's normally with different crew um, in different weather conditions. Uh, uh, well, every day is different, really, at the moment. Uh, uh, we did rescue missions as well, and suddenly jetting off to other areas and other company routes. It's all exciting. So with, uh, you're talking about, obviously, about the command course that you were going to go on with uh, with BMI mm. is obviously is, that's on the table again hopefully it's soon. on the table yeah. Uh, yeah when is the question but yes captaincy soon captaincy soon oh the yeah. four strike that'd be good what the uh, the, the uh, crews like that you uh, obviously fly with now they all well most of them are all ex um, BMI um, okay so I, I know most of them it's all quite good and then uh, the, I've met a few of the tartan people who are coming on to the new type uh, but for them it's uh, well, it's a new type it's like going back to school mm. but they all seem a good bunch um, yeah uh, if any I must admit if anything a lot of the ex-BMI guys are all rather a little bit jaded which is fair enough uh, we got made redundant and we didn't get our last paycheck um, yet we're still owned by a sister company that is the same owners as the previous <laughs> company so there is some bitter resentment um, and they've been asked to move from Bristol to Norwich or Newcastle but a lot of them are quite happy with the outlay of the company, if you understand what I mean. The opportunities. And uh, Nev, we've got a question from the chat room, haven't we, from Andreas? Yes, a uh, quick question from Andreas, just asking what uh, uh, type you fly. Is, am I right in saying that's the uh, uh, ERJ135 and 145? Is that that, that's the ones, Nev, yeah, the Embraer. Yeah. Any particular favourite of the two? Oh, the 135. Okay. It's the little, the little jet. 
same big engines but smaller so more nimble uh, any questions uh, from you Nev at all for uh, Stuart before we wrap up I was just going to ask you but obviously you, you kind of answered that because you know the BMI XBMI guys quite well but uh, how difficult is it obviously you're all trained to the same standards but how difficult is it to get into you know a, a load of sectors with people that you haven't flown with before is that how difficult is it to adapt to that um, well in theory, there should be no difficulty at all because we we all follow the SOPs, our standard operating procedures, and we're all trained to read the checklist in a certain way, to say things at certain times. And obviously, it's kind of a regular routine. Obviously, if there's an emergency situation, it's all a little bit different, right? but it's a, that's a real rarity. Um, so most of the time, we're, we're trained already to just operate with different crew. Uh, yeah, it's only on the personal level. What 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 do you chat about in the crew room when you get there in the morning or during the cruise? What what are you talking about? Uh, although actually on these flights they're often quite short, so we haven't got that much time. Not uh, in the BMI days, it'd be a two-hour cruise to Munich, and we'd be uh, discussing things if there's a free hot lunch left over from the business class. And uh, oh, you have business class uh, back in the old days. Oh, yeah. okay. Not not with Logan. So not, we, we get no. caramel biscuits and a cup of tea. Oh, okay. And a cup of oh, that's a shame. <laughs> Armando, any, any last uh, questions for uh, Stuart before we wrap up? No, I, I just wanted to congratulate Stuart on his uh, move and his transition. I think as as we've said quite a few times, the airline industry can be pretty volatile and uh, having the ability, the qualifications and being unemployed for about eight hours in one day is is a, a great great thing. I don't even know if it was eight hours, right? No, it was, it was two hours. It was two hours. <laughs> yeah, Officially so, unemployed at two, reemployed at four. Uh, yeah, I would, really, mate. Just congratulations, and I, I'm glad you're you got uh, picked up that quickly. And and I also, like everyone else, look forward to seeing your progression in this uh, Tartan Air. Yeah, no, thank you. Well, and also a little bit of more news that I haven't had a chance to really tell you about either. Um, oh, okay. I could be uh, purchasing a share in an aircraft to start doing my own instructing in as well. Um, <gasps> oh, and another bit of news, maybe I haven't talked I'm, I'm, I'm an official BPA examiner now, so anyone who wants to become a parachute pilot, I can examine them for it. Uh, wow. So there's other things going on. Dr. Steph would love, love yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's in the chat room as well, though. Yeah. You're still keeping your hand in with the uh, caravan work as well. Oh, yeah. I never let any of my ratings lapse. Always keep flying in every form yeah. possible. Yeah, doc, Dr. Steph approves. Ah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> right, then. So that is where we are going to start or to wrap up that episode 271 of the show. Big thanks to everyone who has joined us in the live YouTube chat room this evening. Thanks for taking time out of your Friday. So, uh, Nev social media t-shirts where can uh, where can everyone go to find out more about us yes uh facebook page of course it's uh, facebook.com forward slash plain talking uk uh twitter uh, is uh, at plain talking uk and you can send us an email uh, at uh, podcast at plain talking uk.com or we've got our own individual email addresses so carlos Myself, uh, Matt, and Armando. It would be uh, Nev at plaintalkinguk.com, for example. So, uh, look forward to hearing from you. Yes, send in your feedback, and uh, we'll play out on the show. And don't forget as well the backgrounds that we use on the green screen. If you've got a aviation uh, photo or a photo of you with something to do with aviation, you could be flying. Uh, send it in to us at the show 
uh, all the usual email addresses, and uh, you can you can be here behind us here. There we go, Stuart's um, loving the photo there Just from improving the camouflage effect of the week. <laughs> <laughs> right, so that is it then for this week, guys. Take care. Have a great weekend, whatever you're doing across the globe. And uh, so from me and Stuart here in the PTUK studios, we missed you Matt this week, but he'll be back next week hopefully. So from us here, it's goodbye, and from everyone else, see you guys. Have a good week. Goodbye. Bye. Yeah.